We are getting toward the close of our study of the creeds and confessions of the church, kind of paving the way for the study of our own confession coming up here uh, later in the month of September. Today, we have been hinting at and talking about uh, the various councils uh, for several weeks, and today we want to introduce you to four uh, important councils in the history of the church in the 4th and 5th centuries. Uh, our own confession, as we'll see uh, as we go through it in the months and years to come, our own confession has a great debt to these councils and their uh, creedal affirmations that were made as, as a result of them. So we're going to kind of look at all this under the heading of Christological controversies. Um, <clears throat> we had spoken, I think, last week about uh, a doctrine known as monarchianism. Someone remind us what monarchianism was kind of all about. That God is the king, he is the sole king, there's no, there's no other God. Uh, and we would take this from even the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or even the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, for us there is only one God. And uh, one Lord, Jesus Christ, and they're speaking about the divine nature of the Father and the Son together as one glorious God. But as time progressed in the church, uh, the questions, bega questions began to arise regarding the relationship of the Son to the Father. And we talked about uh, Origen and Lucian and Arius a little bit in the last several weeks uh, leading us up to the 4th century, where we come to what's known as the Council of Nicaea. So these controversies that erupt in the 4th and 5th century, we call them Christological controversies because they are controversies, one, that are going to talk about how does Jesus relate to God? Is Jesus fully divine? And then they're also going to address the issue of how does Jesus, how do we think of Christ as a man? Is he fully man? And by the time we get to the end of uh, 451 and the Council of Chalcedon, the church has expressed herself clearly and emphatically in some creedal affirmations regarding the full deity and full humanity of Christ. Now, it's not that this orthodoxy wasn't present in the church from its earliest days, but as various challenges or various uh, Opposing views kind of came to rise up. The church had to formulate answers, and the church had to kind of think about how do we best address this particular theological issue and um, avoid, avoid extremes on one end or the other. Sometimes, uh, sometimes theology is like uh, you know, treading the edge of a razor. You know, if you fall off, it's just real thin, and, and you can easily fall off one way or the other. And you want to make sure that doesn't happen. So we're going to talk about Jesus, the God-man. Right? So we're going to look at uh, various um, councils and the controversies that um, either gave rise to them or even other controversies that somewhat came out of them. Because sometimes they would, they would think that, oh, this council has like solved the problem. You ever had that issue with your, with your kids maybe? You're sitting there. And uh, you talk to your children, and you're feeling really good about yourself as a parent. You're like, problem solved. And then they walk away. And a millisecond happens, and it all falls apart. You're like, I thought it was all good to go. Well, sometimes the councils were like this. We thought we'd solve the problem. But sure enough, they had, they had not. So sometimes problems lead up to a council, other times, problems develop out of a council that another council has to kind of be called uh, to address. Well, <clears throat> we're going to look at four Christological heresies, four Christological heresies. Arianism, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, and this one's fun to say, Eutychianism. It has nothing to do with ticks. Okay, so... Um, I've heard several comments over the last uh, few weeks that we've been using lots of big words, and I'm sympathetic, all right? Sometimes they get a little confusing. But these are the four principal Christological heresies that we want to address, and they're all addressed 
at four principal Christological councils, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. Now, you should have a paper that was on the back table, and you may already be reading that and looking at that. I would probably encourage you at this point just to kind of put that to the side or flip it over on the back and use that for some notes or something. If you need that sheet, it's on the, it's on the back table. So let's kind of get into these, uh, these four councils and the corresponding heresies that they addressed. Right? We're going to begin with Arianism. Arianism. Now, we've talked a little bit about Arius. Uh, I hope by the time we're done today, uh, things will be a little more clear uh, with, with each of these. Arianism is dealt with officially at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea is in the actual town of Nicaea. It's uh, uh, kind of in the northwestern area of modern-day Turkey, very near modern-day Istanbul, if you have done any travel. It was interesting. Uh, I was talking to my mom about this several weeks ago, and mom and dad had actually been to Istanbul. I had no idea they'd been there, and they'd been to the town of uh, Nicaea, uh, where, where this all took place, and that was, kind of, uh, that was kind of neat to hear. Well, at the Council of Nicaea, it was held from May the 20th to June the 19th of 325, and I think I complain about a one-day uh, associational meeting. Um, so, you know, we have a meeting this coming Wednesday for our association. It's going to be from like 10 to 4, and I'm thinking, man, that's six hours. That's, that's a lot of time. I, I could get a lot of things done in six hours. I really hope it's a good meeting. And, um, and when, it's a, when it's a rough meeting, then you really look back on it. You're like, oh, I could have, could have done with something other than that. These guys met for a month. They met for a month addressing the issue of Arianism. Now, they had other issues to deal with as well. But our main focus here is the Christological heresy of Arianism. It was a meeting called by Constantine the Great. Here again, we see the, the coming together of the church and the state. And this becomes a real problem for the church uh, throughout uh, the rest of the early patristic period and into the medieval days as well. The principal theological advisor for Constantine was a man by the name of Hosius. And Hosius is the bishop, I believe it's in Cordova, it's in Spain, and that's where Hosius was the, the leading bishop in that area. There were 300 bishops that were present at the Council of Nicaea. Now, what's interesting about that to me is, well, one, it is a lot of bishops in one, in one room, one area together, trying to engage together. And remember, it was the bishops that participated in the councils. They were the ones that could engage theologically. They could speak across the table. But there were lots of other people present as well. Arius himself is present at the Council of Nicaea. He is an elder, a presbyter in the Church of Alexandria. Now, his bishop, Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, is present at the Council of Nicaea. He is one of the participants. But Arius is just there as a presbyter. Also present at the Council of Nicaea and not participating is Athanasius. We've mentioned him before. Athanasius becomes the leading opponent of Arianism in the 4th century, and much of the battle falls on his, on his shoulders. Another interesting point about these 300 bishops that are present, 1,800 bishops were invited. 1,500 did not come. Now, we don't know why they all didn't come. It could have been age, sickness. Uh, the travel was paid for by Constantine, but the travel just could have been too difficult, too hard. Or not interested, or maybe they were more on the Aryan side, and they saw the handwriting on the wall like there in, uh, in Daniel, and they thought Arius's days are numbered, and I don't want to be the guy that's standing there with him when they give him the boot, which they did uh, at the end of uh, June the 19th. So that's a little bit of the picture of what's going on at the council of Nicaea. Now, Constantine calls the meeting, but Hosius really leads the meeting. He's the theological arm that's kind of pressing against Arius. And Hosius is very much 
an anti-Aryan, like Alexander, like Athanasius, right? There is a strong uh, leadership given by Hosius and Alexander against Arianism. Now, there are many bishops, many of these 300 bishops present are leaning toward Arianism, but Hosius and Alexander theologically win the day. Now, they win the day, but the war is not over because the war just the battles ensue for the next like 40, 50 years, and um, it gets very difficult in the fourth century, leading to the point. I think I've mentioned Jerome before. Jerome makes the comment. He's the one who translated or wrote the Latin Vulgate. Um, <clears throat> he said at one point in time in the fourth century, the whole world has become Arian. So Arianism does become very, very dominant in that in that day. Um, it doesn't uh, squash the light or extinguish the light uh, of the truth, but it, it does uh, have a strong presence, especially in the East. All right. The focus. So the focus of this particular council is on the teaching of Arius. We've mentioned already he is an elder in the church in Alexandria. He is a popular teacher. Now, I'm not going to sing again because the guys threatened last week to post that thing on social media and Maybe it's on some account I haven't been able to find yet, but I'll bet, I'll bet somewhere back there in that control brain center, they're holding the video hostage, and it'll come up again one day. Maybe, an, what's, what's the EMP thing or whatever? It'll just like wipe out all their, all their hard drives. But uh, Jeremy had asked about Arius's teaching uh, being communicated through little songs, and Arius was a very creative type poet. He had these little short ditties, and he would put them to music, and he made his, uh, his teachings uh, very popular. They were well-received. He, he was a very beloved elder uh, preacher in the church there in Alexandria. Arius and those who followed him uh, were also what I would call staunch biblicists. Uh, they had a real desire to keep the discussion just on Bible verses. As long as we're just talking Bible verses, we're fine. It's when you want to draw theological conclusions from these biblical texts that things got a little dicey for them. This is, uh, this is seen at the Council of Nicaea, where the principal Arian that is represented, the principal Arian bishop, is a man by the name of Eusebius of Nicomedia. <clears throat> Eusebius... Um, and his uh, fellow Arian um, kind of compatriots there that followed him around, at the Council of Nicaea would dialogue with the anti-Arians, and the anti-Arians would say things like, well, do you believe? And then they would quote a Bible verse. And the Eusebius and, and his friends would kind of go over here, and, and they would talk, and they would kind of converse with one another, and then they would come back, and they would say, yay and amen. And we also believe, and they'll throw another Bible verse out there just to show, see, we're very biblical, all right? Um, and the anti-Arians would then go back and go, obviously this isn't working. They, they just kind of frustrated themselves for hours and days quoting biblical texts and saying, do you believe these texts? You can imagine yourself having a conversation with a Mormon at your door, all right? He comes by, knocks on the door, and you've got your Bible, he's got his Bible, or maybe he's got your Bible, all right? And, uh, and you say, well, do you believe this Bible text? Well, yes, we believe that Bible text, and we believe this one too, all right? And so as long as you're just keeping on quoting Bible verses back and forth, uh, this can just be kind of like a volley. <laughs> you're, just, uh, you're playing tennis, and you're just hitting the ball nice, and nobody's slamming anything on anybody. Nobody's winning. You're just going back and forth and back and forth. Well, uh, the anti-Arians of the Council of Nicaea realized that this needed to be uh, address. And so they began to formulate their doctrinal positions using non-biblical terminology. Now, if you want to read about that a little more, uh, there's a great little letter that Athanasius has written. It's called De Decretis. You can find it online uh, for free. And I think in the, uh, um, if you happen to have a series of books known as the uh, uh, the Nicene, post-Nicene, anti-Nicene, Nicene, post-Nicene Nicene, Nicene Fathers. 
Um, you can find this, this whole set of books, like 38 volumes. It's online, so it's free in that regard. And you can find PDFs of it. You can search and stuff like that. It's about 20 pages in this series. And it's a, it's a wonderful little, little, it's a letter written by Athanasius uh, helping a friend understand what happened at the council. So the friend wrote to, to Athanasius, hey, I don't understand what was going on at the council. You were there. You were an observer. Can you tell me what was going on? And he writes back, and he talks about Eusebius, and he refers to Eusebius as Eusebius and his fellows. That's the way he calls them all the time. He just says it over and over again. You can almost hear this little snarky tone coming out of Eusebius and his fellows. And, and they're the ones that are constantly going, going back and forth with him. Uh, but he comes to the conclusion at the end and explains why it is that they decided that they had to, in their creedal formulation, why did they have to actually use non-biblical terminology to explain biblical doctrine? So it's a great explanation of that, and it's really kind of a defense of creedalism and a defense of confessionalism. Because if we can't formulate our doctrine in non-biblical terms, then all we have are biblical terms. All we really have are like Bible texts, right? And we just, nothing, there's no, no, no document that could possibly distinguish us from kind of the other, the other group, all right? Um, <clears throat> so the teaching of Arianism. Briefly, the son, according to Arius, does not share the father's being or his essence. Ontologically speaking, the father and the son are different beings. So where Jesus comes and says, I and the father are one, right? Um, I'm sure Eusebius and his fellows would have an answer for that. Um, but that's some pretty, some pretty unifying language there. But their teaching was the son does not share the father's being. Joe, can I possibly get you to, do we have an extension cord? This thing started at 47%, now it's at 35%, and uh, I see things sinking fast. Uh, the son is not co-eternal with the father. So they're, they're, they're different in being, and the son is not co-eternal with the father, Therefore, so they're, they're distinct in being, and they're distinct, in a sense, in chronology. The Father is eternal. The Son is not eternal. All right? This is where Arius' popular phrase comes in that he did put to music as a little ditty. There was a time when he was not. All right? There was a time when the Son was not. So he is denying here the full deity of the Son, the Son is, for Arius, a created being, hence a lesser God. Right? There was a time when he came into being. Now, it was before everything else came into being. The Son is the first of the creations of God the Father, and then through the Son, God makes everything else. Kind of the result of this uh, council and this, this whole, this whole month-long discussion is that there is the production of what we call the Nicene Creed. As we've mentioned before, this is not the creed that's in your bulletin each and every Lord's Day that we confess, that we call the Nicene Creed as kind of shorthand. The one that's in the bulletin is the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed that comes out of the Council of Constantinople in 381. This creed, and we read it, I think, last week, we had it on the screen, uh, is a little briefer, uh, it, had, it ends with the phrase, I think, we believe in the Holy Spirit, period. Right? Uh, whereas the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed goes on and says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who together with the Father and Son is to be worshipped and glorified, etc. So Arius, as a result of this council, is condemned and exiled. There were two bishops that were exiled, um, I forget their names, but they were from Libya. So you think of the North Africa, Egypt, Libya area, and uh, there ought to be a table there somewhere. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> two bishops from Libya who were closely connected to Arius and really favored him, um, they were also exiled and, and banished. Now, I've said at the end here that it's a weak consensus. 
This is where they, they're thinking they really have it solved, but they, they don't. And things begin to quickly unravel. We covered a little bit of that uh, last week uh, in uh, the slide. I think it was some high points. Um, you can kind of go back and, and look at that. I, I think these are on our sermon audio page if you want to get those. And if you want more on this, you, I can always email the PowerPoints or something. Maybe we can upload PowerPoints to Sermon Audio. Can that, does that work? I'll try to get those to Jason. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so there is a weak consensus. There is a consensus, but it's a, it's a weak one. Now, there's a couple reasons probably it's weak. One is a theological reason. There are many, well, the, there are at least, um, <laughs> there are at least three or two bishops at the council that don't sign the Nicene Creed, the two guys from Libya. Now, Arius obviously doesn't sign, but he doesn't sign because he's an elder and not a bishop. Interestingly, Eusebius of Nicomedia does sign, but his signature is somewhat forced. And it's forced not simply by theological power, it's forced by political power. Many of the bishops at the meeting that were kind of had an inclination toward Arianism just submit because Constantine wants things to be at peace. Right? And remember, Constantine's principal advisor is Hosius, who is pressing this on Constantine as well. Okay, that's a little bit about Arianism. Questions? Comments? Yeah, Stephen. Alexander. <laughs> that's convenient. Alexander of Alexander. Oh, no, 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 no. The bishop of Alexandria, Alexander, is Athanasius's bishop, and this entire thing began, if we go back a little bit in the, the, the history of it, this entire thing begins with Arius writing letters to Alexander to basically argue for his case and declare his orthodoxy. And Alexander's like, eh, I don't think so. That's not a direct quote, but... Um, you get the idea. Alexander's like, no way, you're not Orthodox at all. And uh, there are appeals made to uh, uh, the Bishop of Rome, and there are appeals made to Constantine. Uh, lots of letters going back and forth. Uh, there's an interesting uh, text. It's by a guy named Rush, R-U-S-C-H. It's just called, I think, The Trinitarian Controversy. It's a little paperback book. You can probably find a copy with like five bucks on Amazon. And it has the primary source letters. And uh, I didn't bring it today, but I, I just got in the mail uh, the other day um, uh, an exam copy of a book that I'm hoping to use for a class one day. Um, it is a, it's like a 500-page book. And I, I haven't read it, but I've looked at it enough. It's, uh, it's letters from like 337 to 362. It's all the letters that went back and forth regarding these different controversies in this period. And uh, getting back to those primary texts is really interesting when you read what they actually said. So, yeah, Alexander is a total anti-Aryan. So. Yes, yes. And that's why Alexander feels responsible. He has to deal with this. And, but he does have some kind of sense of connectivity to the other churches. So he writes to Rome. He writes to Constantinople. He wants to get input, and, uh, he, and he's going to need them on his side, if you will, because he knows the church in Alexandria can't just stand alone. And so, Tom? Athanasius is in Alexandria, Egypt. He's an Egyptian. Nicomedia is up by Constantinople, and that's where Eusebius is. And this is Eusebius of Nicomedia. This is not Eusebius of Caesarea, the church historian. It's a different Eusebius. And so Ben and Michael. Ben, what's got? Okay, is she good? Well, think, think about it. I mean, this is a church with multiple presbyters of which Alexander is a bishop, but he's a presbyter, all right? Uh, now, the presbyters are not bishops, but the bishop would be considered a presbyter as well, all right? So uh, there's dissension in the ranks in the leadership of a church. Go figure. I mean, 
like it's never happened before. You know, um, yeah, just happens all the time. And so, Michael. Yeah, it's a good question. Don't know. I mean, that really wasn't even part of the conversation. That wasn't uh, part of the discussion. And it's not that he denies the deity of Christ. He denies the full deity of Christ. So there's a sense in which you could say Jesus is divine. There's a sense in which you could say Jesus is a creature. It's a little messed up, all right? So he, he does not have a fully, he's, he's not fully divine like the Father. So if you think back to last week, we talked about Origen and his subordinationism um, and Lucian and uh, where the Father and the Son are like united in will, but again, not in being. And then Arius just comes full out and says, Jesus is created. Now, he's created in eternity, so there's a sense he's kind of connected to some divine aspects, but he's not fully divine like the Father. Um, Billy and then Jeff, and then we probably need to move on. But uh, Billy, what's got Same church, yeah. Now, it's not the same church like we're thinking of a church, like in this room together, all right? It's Alexandria, Egypt. It's a very large city in the northern part of Egypt, probably has multiple churches, uh, multiple congregations meeting that are all headed up by these different elders that are all part of the larger church of Alexandria that comes under the bishopric of Alexandria. I don't know if that helps any. Sure. Yeah, there is a sense of a connected ecclesiology in some sense. Uh, we're talking here about the one holy Catholic apostolic church in that sense. There, there, there is a sense of connectivity, and, uh, which finds some similarity in our concepts of like associationalism or whatever. But yeah. Jeff? Well, I mean, if this is embraced, it totally sinks the concept of the Trinity. Yeah, I mean, that's what's at stake. And that's why there's such fervor about it and such engagement, because they realize what the cost of this is. If, as our confession says, the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our communion with God, and we lose that, you have no what? You have no communion with God. So that's, that's pretty, uh, that's be pretty overwhelming. All right, so let's, uh, let's kind of move on and uh, to think. I didn't think I'd have enough information. Okay, um, let's look at a second heresy, that being Apollinarianism. All right, this has nothing to do with whether or not you should or shouldn't go to the moon. This is, sorry, I was just, I was trying. Ah, it's a tough crowd. All right. Council of Constantinople. Council of Constantinople meets from May to July 381. Don't have any more specific dates, but that might be more specific than you wanted anyway. It is called not by Constantine. This is called later. It's called by Emperor Theodosius, Theodosius I. Now, remember, Theodosius I is the emperor under whom Christianity moves from being a licit or legal or legitimate religion to now being what? The official religion of the empire. Right? There are about 190 bishops that are present at the Council of Constantinople. 
Now, the focus of this particular council is the teaching of a man by the name of Apollinaris. Apollinaris is the bishop of Laodicea. Just kind of as a side note there, what does that make you think about? Do you ever wonder what happened to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? It must have listened. Here it is. It's still here. Oh, that's pretty interesting. All right. Um, think about that. You know, we're going to be in 431. We're going to be in Ephesus. Whatever happened to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? It was still there in the 4th, 5th century. All right. Um, Apollinaris is a friend, a close friend of Athanasius. And he is a defender of Nicene Christology. So at the moment, prior to the Council of Constantinople, Apollinaris seems like one of the good guys. All right? You've got to be careful about putting white hats and black hats upon people uh, in church history because you might just get a whole bunch of hats with shades of gray, you know, uh, the good guys and the bad guys. But um, Apollinaris seems to be uh, on the right side of history in that regard. He is defending Nicene Christianity. He is a staunch defender of this with Athanasius. Athanasius is, is, is with him in that regard. Now, Apollinaris' teaching focuses on what's called the Logos Christology. Now, if you think of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word for word is the Greek term Logos, the Word, the the reason, thought, can be translated different ways. And here in John 1, it's speaking about the person of the Son who becomes flesh. In Apollinaris' view of Logos Christology, he teaches that in the man Jesus, the Logos, the divine Logos, replaces the human soul or the human mind of Jesus. So Jesus has a human body. Again, this is according to Apollinaris. Jesus has a human body, but he doesn't have a human soul or a human mind. He has a divine soul or a divine mind. The, the net result of this is that Apollinaris is denying the full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the opening slide here was we were talking about Christological heresies dealing with Jesus as the God-man, right? We don't simply affirm Jesus to be fully God. We also affirm him to be fully what? Fully man, all right? Apollinaris is opposed to Arianism that subordinates the Son to the Father to the point of being a creature, which would take away his full deity. Apollinaris is a defender of the full deity of the Son. The problem is with Apollinaris is... He's not a defender of the full humanity of the Son. Now, the result of this, a couple of things. One, there is a synod that's held in 362 in Alexandria that rejected the teaching of this Logos Christology that kind of made the humanity of, of the Lord Jesus uh, less than fully human. However, at the council or the synod in 362, the focus was really on some Arians that were beginning to adopt this kind of teaching, and Apollinaris was somewhat slipping under the radar. Because remember, Apollinaris is a great defender of Nicene Orthodoxy regarding the deity of the Son. He's a great friend of Athanasius. Nobody really suspected Apollinaris at this point to be one of these guys saying these kinds of things, right? But now, by the time 381 rolls around, uh, it becomes very clear that Apollinaris holds these views as well uh, that take the humanity of the Lord Jesus as not fully human. And he is condemned by the Council of Constantinople. One of the leading bishops at the council was Gregory of Nazianzus. We've heard his name before. He was one of the three what? Do you remember? Not Cappuccino Fathers. But the Cappadocian fathers, all right, one of those three guys, all right, and uh, Gregory Nazianzus made the statement at the council. He said, "What was not assumed was not what was not healed. If Jesus doesn't become fully man, then he cannot redeem those who are fully men. 
He must become fully incarnate. I mean, think about the biblical testimony to the fact that Jesus becomes flesh in every way as we, yet without sin. Because we are made of flesh and blood. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus had to become what? Flesh and blood. Had to become just like we were, yet without sin. Questions on Apollinarianism? That is possible that we do live in this, this Greek dualistic world where, like, for example, the second and third century Gnostic heresies would teach that matter is bad and spirit is good. That can certainly be, quote-unquote, floating around in the air. I think what's really driving Apollinaris is the idea that he wants to defend the deity of Christ so much that the idea of him being human, all right, fully human, and coming together as one here, how does that happen? And so he just errs on the side of making the humanity of Jesus kind of a less-than-full humanity. And this Logos Christology, the idea of the Logos kind of coming in and connecting with Christ or whatever, uh, has been around since the 2nd century, but it's never really been clarified and defined about how we're going to talk about this relationship of, of the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ. And, and still, at this point, the church still hasn't really come out with that clarity that we benefit from today. Um, I've said before, uh, we are standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. Um, we, are, uh, we don't want to be like children, ungrateful for their parents. Um, if you're a child today and you're grateful for your parents, that's a wonderful thing. But how many times do kids grow up and think their parents don't know anything? You know, um, that happens a lot. And churches today often look back on the previous generations of the church and think, Oh, we know more, and uh, we are greatly indebted indebted to them. So, Apollinaris, um, no. You know what's interesting about a lot of these guys, and this happens so often in church history. It happens today as well. Uh, whenever someone is charged with heresy, the next thing you just don't understand. You don't understand what I'm saying. You're not listening to me. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this, and it sounds like they said the same thing they just said before. And, um, you know, if, you are all, if you're a teacher of the Bible and you are always having to clarify what you say, maybe you're just not very what? Maybe you're not very clear. <laughs> so we want to make sure we're clear, all right? Uh, there are some Bible teachers that thrive in making ear-catching, you know, amazing statements that people are like, wow, I've never heard that before. And uh, I used to be very amazed with some of them. And I'm not as amazed anymore because I just kind of stick clear of them. I want people to be clear. I don't want teachers to be original. I want them, what does the old hymn say? I'm so tempted to sing, tell me the old, old story. Write on my heart every word. You know, I want, I want those old paths. I, I don't want some newfangled idea somebody's got because he, he was clever. He came up with some cool things to say. And I won't name names, but maybe you can think of some. Yeah, Billy? Yes, this is where the final version that we have today, that we call the Nicene Creed, comes from here. Now they do, I think, Michael, you were asking about the Holy Spirit. Um, It's probably not that they didn't have some thoughts and views on the Holy Spirit. I'm sure they did, all right? And we can go back in the writings of the fathers and read about them. But the Holy Spirit, the discussion about the Holy Spirit was not on the table. By the time we get to the Council of Constantinople, it is. And hence, there's a a brief paragraph in the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed about the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm going to mess it up, but I think I said a little bit ago. We believe in the Holy Spirit uh, who... Just go blank. Lord and giver of life, with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified. Okay, something like that. So... Now, one of the reasons for that, we don't talk about it on here because it's not dealing with Apollinarianism. It's dealing with a group called the Pneumatomachians. You're thinking. (laughs) Say that five times really fast. The Pneumatomachians. What is that? Well, kind of break it up, all right? Pneuma, the spirit, Machianism, the idea of fighting. The Pneumatomachians were the people who fought about the Holy Spirit. 
And they were going around in the 360s and the 370s, and they were saying all kinds of crazy stuff about the Holy Spirit. And the Cappadocian fathers, in particular, come out with some really great stuff on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I think, is it, is it Basil who has the five orations about the Holy Spirit? And I should remember this. It's in my class. I assign it, and now I can't remember. But I think it may be Basil the Great who has the five orations about the Holy Spirit. You can look it up online sometime. And uh, they're, really, they're really good. And he's addressing often the Nomadomachians. And so, hence the need to have a more full uh, creedal affirmation of the Holy Spirit in 3 to 1. All right, let's move on. We have much ground to cover. Nestorianism. Nestorianism. The Council of Ephesus addresses the issue of Nestorianism from June uh, 22nd into July of 431. I don't know how far in July, but probably toward the end of the month. Excuse me. It's called by Theodosius II. Uh, Theodosius II is the last in the dynasty of those Theodosiuses. Kind of reaches back to Theodosius I. And sometimes this is called like the golden age of the empire. There are 153 bishops that are present, and the leading theologian is a man by the name of Cyril, who is the bishop of Alexandria. Right? We're, we're well past Alexander at this point, and now we are to a man by the name of Cyril. The focus of this council is Nestorius, who is the bishop of Constantinople. Now, remember Constantinople? Uh, in like 330, Constantine moved the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople, calling Constantinople the new Rome. So this is the guy who is the bishop of the capital of the empire, all right? So a very prominent place to be. He is a staunch defender of Nicaea, and he is an opponent of Apollinaris. So, so far, so good. He is a pursuer of heretics, and that's what I've called him. He is, uh, he is if, if, if there were blogs, remember back, any of you remember like you know, 20 years ago? Um, well, a little, a little further than that, there was no internet. My kids always look at me, there was no internet. What did you do? We used books books. And, uh, but there were all these discernment blogs. You remember those? All right. It was like, you go to the discernment blog, you know, uh, www.ihateeverybody.com. All right. And, and you'd pull it up and there'd be like a list going down forever. You know, it would start with Joyce Meyer and you're like, yeah. All right. And then it would go to John MacArthur and like, oh, that sounds wrong. And then R.C. Sproul's at the bottom and you're like, this is wrong. So, you know, all these different things are happening. You're like, Jesus doesn't like anybody. It was like everybody in the, in, the, in the alphabet soup of Bible teachers, you know, was on this discernment blog, and I'd find these things. Well, <clears throat> Nestorius is kind of like that. He is going hard after all the people that he thinks are heretics in the empire, especially there around Constantinople. Now, this is probably going to make Nestorius a little on the critical side, all right? Do you know what happens to the people that surround people who are critical? They often become what? They become critical too, all right? Um, You know that old adage, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy? Well, I have found after 33 years of marriage, if daddy ain't happy, nobody's happy either. And I've often found too that if the kids ain't happy, mom and daddy ain't happy. And so it's just like, Everybody feeds off everybody else, you know. One person comes in the room, they're all happy. Everybody loves Ben at home. Ben comes in the room, he's all like jovial and happy or whatever. And I'm sitting here on my old man's self, and I'm like, oh, man. And now he's a deacon. i got to like, you know, listen to him, respect him a little bit more. can't just say, stop it, go to your room. All right, so, but, you know, he has a way of bringing levity back into the room and happiness back in the room. And Janice are like, we're just so glad for Ben. This is really good. It's a great gift. It's a wonderful quality. Everybody notices it. And, uh, and everybody can notice grumpiness, too. Everybody can notice criticism, all right? And it, it kind of feeds. Well, Nestorius provides the fuel for the fire that he starts, and it burns him. Because people begin to look at him a little more closely. And they realize, Mr. Nestorius, you are notorious. And there's a problem. So... His teaching, he affirms the divine and human natures of Jesus, 
So far, so good, all right? However, Nestorius affirms a union of the divine and human natures of Christ that are moral or volitional. He is united with the Father in moral virtue, we might say. He is united with the Father in will, but he is not united with the Father in essence or being. We're back to another ontological problem here, right? He rejects a term for Mary, and the term that is floating around in that day and is eventually affirmed at the Council of Ephesus is the term theotakos. And he prefers a term for Mary, Christotakos. Theotakos means the God-bearer. Right? Sometimes, translated today in the more vernacular, the mother of God. And you might see how that could begin to make somebody a little uncomfortable. Mary is the mother of God. However, the one who is born of Mary is the Word made flesh. The one born of Mary is indeed God, a very God. She is to be seen as Theotokos. Now, this term, the story is found to be very uncomfortable. And he preferred the term Christotokos, the mother of Christ, the mother of the human nature of Jesus, right? He didn't like Theotokos. In fact, uh, there was a man, an elder in his church there in Constantinople, that preached a series of sermons against the concept of Theotokos, and Nestorius affirmed those sermons, which got him in no little bit of hot water. Right? Now, just a note here about Theotokos may make you uncomfortable too. I don't know. Um, I'm fine and affirm the, the, the term Theotokos and the concept of Theotokos because Theotokos is trying to make a statement about the one born of Mary. It's not trying to make a statement about Mary. All right? Now, there is some sense in which Nestorius is concerned because he's like, this makes Mary like a goddess. Think of Greek mythology or whatever. You know, goddesses beget what? gods or something like that. So he, he has, we could say, good intentions, but, you know, we all have heard our mothers say things about good intentions. You know, good intentions don't always get us the right, the right place. Nestorius wants to separate the divine and the human natures of Jesus to such a point that it is feared by many that Nestorius is pressing two persons. This affirmation of two natures that are separated would create, essentially, two persons. And we can't have Christ being two persons. Right? Now, the result of this, he is condemned and banished by the emperor. Now, Nestorius rejects that he is holding to two persons. He does not say that. He says, I'm not holding to that. But he had so separated uh, the two natures that it essentially led to the conclusion, the logical conclusion of, of two persons. Nestorius' books are burned. <clears throat> Yet there is a strong movement supporting Nestorius, and it breaks from the church and forms what is known to us today still as the church of the East. And the Church of the East, uh, those who are not in the Church of the East, those that remained uh, with the Church, if you will, in, in creedal orthodoxy, will often look at the Church of the East and say, oh, it finds its origins in Nestorius. But the Church of the East claims today their kind of theological founder as a man by the name of Theodore of Mopsuestia who was a, an, a, a Bible teacher, elder in, um, I think, Antioch. And he was, uh, had a very literal hermeneutic. Uh, he was uh, very much a biblicist in some sense. And there's a whole other story about Theodore of Mopsuestia. But um, <clears throat> it doesn't really save them from some problems because Theodore has some issues as well. He and Nestorius were kind of contemporaries. Um, all right, briefly... Any questions there? Yeah, Matt? 
it's not, it's not the deciding point right now. In other words, they don't have this doctrine of the hypostatic union uh, probably is going to come somewhere out of, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out of somewhere in Ephesus or Chalcedon. Um, I'm not sure. I'll try to look that up. And um, it's a good question. And what Matt's alluding to, the doctrine of the hypostatic union, speaking about the union of the divine and human nations of Christ, that, that are, he's united in, in one person, but the natures are not compounded, the natures are not confused, uh, they're not kind of conflated together. Uh, they are still distinct. The problem with Nestorius is that they are separate. He's not just saying they're distinct, they're united but distinct. No, they're just separate. Um, so... All right, let's look at uh, uh, Eutychianism briefly, and this may be as far as we get. And uh, All right. The Council of Chalcedon, October the 8th through November the 1st, 451, called by Emperor Marcion. This is attended, note this, by 520 bishops. This is the largest of all the councils. And it is the most um, recorded. In other words, the minutes from this council, the, the notes from this council are quite intricate. All right? um, Nicaea, for example, we have no minutes. We have no actual notes from anybody that was at Nicaea. Official notes. We have reports from different people, like Athanasius in his writing of De Decretis and other people who have said things about it. No official notes. The focus is a man by the name of Eutyches. He's an elder in Constantinople. He is not a bishop. He's an elder and a leader of a monastery. He is pro-Nicene, and he is an opponent of Nestorius. Right? It's very popular to be for Nicaea, and it's very popular to be against the guy that just got condemned a few years earlier. Right? It's always a good thing. His teaching is that he fails to hold a distinction in both natures. He mingles the two natures into one. This is the error of what is known historically as monophysitism, or one nature. Now, this is an error, interestingly, that is commonly associated with Cyril of Alexandria from a prior generation. Cyril had a view of the one nature of Christ, and he used it to argue against um, others, but Cyril was never condemned. Um, <clears throat> the results here in this council, there is a synod in 448 in Constantinople condemning Nestorianism. Um, <clears throat> Well, I don't have enough time. There's another synod in 449 known as the Robbers Synod. And basically, the uh, anti-Nestorian bishop at this particular synod is beaten up by some monks. And um, the, 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 the synod supposedly goes the way of reinstating Nestorius, or reinstating Eutyches um, in, his, in his eldership. And, uh, but... There are a lot of letters that go back and forth. The Council of Chalcedon is called in 451. Leo, the bishop of Rome at that point in time, writes a letter uh, that is sometimes referred to as Leo's Tome. And uh, they read, Leo doesn't come. He doesn't come to the council at, at, uh, at Chalcedon, but he, uh, he sends his letter and sends his representatives. And uh, they read his Tome, uh, which condemns Eutyches. And uh, the council sides with Leo. Uh, this, is a, this is an interesting point historically because this is one of the places that we first see uh, Leo, the, the bishop of Rome, is one who really connects his bishop authority back to the apostles. And so if we think about the, rising, the rise of apostolic succession, the rise of Roman primacy, um, so sometimes the question is asked, where does, where does Rome begin to ascend to being seen itself as this kind of leading um, uh, apostolic see, this apostolic chair, and this is one of the places. And the church and the churches that are assembled in Chalcedon, all these bishops do 
rejoice in Leo's declaration because most of these Christological controversies, they're all happening in the East. They're not happening in the West. In the West, things are much more stable. Remember, you had Hosius out in Spain. You had Irenaeus out in Lyon uh, back in the second century. Uh, You had Tertullian in the second century in Carthage. A lot of Trinitarian indebtedness to him. Uh, You had in the fifth century, at this particular point in time, you have Augustine in Hippo. There's a lot of doctrinal stability in the West. Things are often struggling in, in the East. And there are some results of the council. Don't have time to go into those things. All right, let's, let's mention very briefly here um, <clears throat> Chalcedonian Christology. This is a statement by Bruce Shelley, and I think it's helpful. You might just jot it down, all right? Chalcedonian Christology. By 451, this is a statement that Shelley makes to kind of sum up what's happened looking at those four councils. In Jesus Christ, true deity against Arius and full humanity against Apollinarius are indivisibly united in one person against Nestorius without being confused against Eutyches. I think that is a very helpful sentence. I've kind of kept it with me for years. Uh, Bruce Shelley's uh, book on church history, Church History in Plain Language, it's a great little book. You can get an audio book of that. It's wonderful to listen to because Shelley is a He's a great writer. I mean, he could have been a novel writer, but he takes church history and weaves it together like one long narrative story, and it's, it's really, really well written. So in Jesus, true deity and full humanity are indivisibly united in one person without being confused. All right. And very quickly, again, because we just don't have much time here, let me introduce you to what's known as the Chalcedonian box. This is your paper. So if you still have that paper, turn it over, look at the box for just a moment. And uh, let's kind of focus on just a few things about it. Notice um, the, first, the first two councils are trying to address the issue of Jesus being fully divine and fully human. The Council of Nicaea, uh, you ought to have this where the Council of Nicaea is at the top. All right. So the Council of Nicaea in 325, God alone can save us. This is against Arianism. Right? So if he's not fully God, we can't be saved. Right? But now flip it over. He's also fully human. Council of Constantinople. This is Gregor Nazianzus' comment, that which is not assumed cannot be healed. Contra Apollinarianism. Now the next two councils are going to say, okay, now that we've determined he's fully God and he's fully man, in what sense is he fully man? Well, Flip over where the Council of Ephesus is on the top, 431. He has one person. The one person of Christ is God the Son. This is contra Nestorianism. And then, okay, he is one person, but he's also two natures. Council of Chalcedon in 451. The one person of Christ has two natures, contra Eutychianism. So in this one chart, it really sums up what's happening in these four councils regarding the divine and human nature of Christ, the singular personhood of Christ, and the two natures of Christ. So we affirm that Christ is fully God and fully man. We affirm that Christ is one in person and two in nature. Now, it doesn't address it here, but we also affirm that Christ is two in will. He has a human will, and he he being God, he has the divine will. Um, But this is kind of classic, historic, orthodox Christianity coming out of these councils in these uh, these early years. Okay, it's 2 o'clock, which means we're done. Um, So let's pray. And you have questions, please come see me later on. And uh, we will uh, press on next week, uh, laying some foundation for our study of our own confession. Father, we ask your blessing on us as we transition to a time of corporate worship. We thank you for the study we've had. I I thank you for the interaction, and I pray uh, uh, that the the instruction in these uh, sessions we've had regarding these historic councils has been helpful. I pray that you would help us to remain grounded 
in sound orthodoxy regarding the person of Christ. We do desire this day to exalt him and to give praise and glory to his name. Father, help us as we move to a time of worship. May you watch over the gathering of your people. May you bring us by your spirit into your presence. May you receive our praise, hear our prayers, bring us your word, lead us to your table, help us to feed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and send us out, God, back into the world, God, to be lights for Christ and to be faithful to him. We ask God all this in Jesus' name.